in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 49 for our Old Testament scripture reading. I think all of us here would agree that money is, in fact, a useful thing. But here in the psalm, we find that there are some things that money cannot buy. And here, the emphasis being on the life of man, which money cannot pay for a ransom. Psalm chapter 49. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have, fall, who have foolish confidence. And yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. That is, they're appointed for the grave. Death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in the grave with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him, for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Now if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for our New Testament Scripture reading. I'm just going to focus on one verse this morning, verse 9, but for our broader context, we'll begin reading again in verse 1. Here we find, even as we heard in Psalm 49, that the riches of man perish with himself. We find that uh, it is a different case with the riches that we have in Christ. As the whole New Testament declares, that the riches that we have in Christ are indeed immeasurable. And here we find and are told of Christ's own wealth and what that consists in. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor 
the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that just as he has started, so should he complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see to it that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is God's word. Let us go before him and pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word that has been given to us that tells us of the great work of Christ. We ask that by your Spirit's power, you would illuminate our hearts to delight in these things that are found in your Word, that we might be strengthened to believe all that you've told us concerning Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember when I lived in Philadelphia a number of years ago when I was going to seminary, one of my favorite things to do uh, was to, to ride my bike down the Wissickon Trail. It's about a 13-minute ride, uh, a 13-minute, 13 13-mile 13 ride uh, down uh, to the center city. And there at the center portion of the city, you would find the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I think if any of you have ever seen uh, the first Rocky movie, you're f- very familiar at least with the outside of this particular museum. It is the, the place of the so-called Rocky Steps. It's a beautiful museum. It's one of my favorite museums in the world, and it has a really rich collection of things, and you might kind of yawn and go, oh, art, how boring. But for all of you younger kids, recognize that they have a great collection and assortment of medieval weaponry and armor. Uh, it's way cool to see all the old swords and armor and guns, as well as the painting and art. But one of the things that you would see at this particular museum, and, and what they would do is, is uh, one particular Wednesday night a month, it would be uh, pay, uh, pay whatever you want to get in. And so I would go on that particular night with some friends, and we'd pay a buck uh, instead of however, 20, 30 bucks to get in. Uh, and we would go and, and just have a, have a grand old time. Uh, and, and you'd see all these various collections. You'd see kind of the, the impressionistic portraits in one particular section. They would have uh, a number of uh, portraits by Monet or uh, Van Gogh. They had his, his sunflower, if, if you're familiar with that particular portrait, or Monet's uh, water li- lilies. Um, you think of Van Gogh's Starry Night, which is located at a different museum. But that's a, the idea that you have with those impressionistic portraits, these uh, really beautiful paintings that give this, uh, this dazzling impression of what it is that's going on, at least from a distance. But the closer you get to the painting, uh, the things start to look a little more jumbled. Everything begins to look a little more fuzzy. It's a, quite a different form of artwork than what you'd see in your Renaissance-type portraits or uh, the type of paintings that you would see in, in Dutch realistic art, which the Philadelphia Museum had as well. And one of the differences that you see is uh, in Renaissance painting, there is a real concern uh, for proportion and proper form. Uh, the, the focus is on uh, exquisite attention to detail. I remember looking at one particular portrait uh, of a landscape. It was the, the painting itself was about this big, and at first, I, you know, I'm not much of a painting guy. I was with friends who knew what they were talking about, and they say, hey, look at this painting. I go, oh, that's nice. That's a hill. That's some trees. 
whoop-de-doo. Um, but then one of the uh, uh, employees walked up and handed me a magnifying glass and said, well, why don't you look a little bit more closely? Because uh, all I had seen are just uh, hills and trees. But when, you, when I, I looked and, and, and took the magnifying glass, you actually see uh, on the hill in the small portrait uh, men riding on horseback. Uh, you can even see the detail of the laces on their shoes. It's a quite exquisite detail. And it turns out the guy who had painted this um, this painting, I, I can't remember his name, can't remember the name of the painting, um, shows you how much I paid attention. Um, but the guy only used two cat hairs to paint uh, the entire thing. So there is great attention to detail. I think when it comes to the question of Christian discipleship, we treat discipleship more like an impressionistic painting. It looks good from a distance, but the closer, uh, on closer inspection, our lives look uh, more and more like a jumbled mess. But I don't think we can content ourselves with impressionistic portraits of discipleship. What Scripture is uh, uh, very concerned to tell us is that every detail matters, even down to the minutest details, even down to the question of our wallets and the question of getting, giving. This morning, we'll consider one facet of Christian discipleship, this particular feature that Paul has spending great effort focusing on, not just the fact of giving, but the motivation for giving as well. And he does so by directing our attention to our own Savior. There are two concepts that are set before us this particular morning, that of wealth and poverty. You see it here in verse 9. More pointedly, it points us to the riches and poverty of Christ. Now, if we were to kind of set this particular verse within its broader context, we would, in fact, recognize that for the first seven chapters in this letter, Paul has been defending his ministry. But now, beginning in chapter 8, Paul asked for Corinth to support him in the work of the ministry, this ministry that he has been zealous to defend And as we've seen over the past three weeks, the concern is over this diaconal collection that Paul is taking for the poor in Jerusalem. There is a massive famine that has befallen the church in Jerusalem. Now Paul, part of his commission in his evangelistic labors is to go from church to church and take up a collection so that his brothers and sisters in Christ could be supported in the midst of this great material crisis. And so for the first eight verses, Paul has been directing Corinth's attention, and Corinth seems to be a fairly well-to-do church, and and Paul keeps directing their attentions to much poorer churches who have a better concept of giving than the Corinthian church does. But now Paul, uh, as it were, pulls out the big guns, because for Verses 1 to 8, Paul has been saying, look at the churches of Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, those Macedonian churches, imitate them, but now... Paul says, consider our Lord Himself and imitate what He Himself has done. It's something that we see throughout Scripture, and it's something that I think it's easy for us uh, to forget or at least to overlook. Jesus is upheld as a model to imitate. Christ Himself says this, if anyone wants to be My disciple, what must he do? He must take up his cross and follow after me. This isn't to deny the unique aspect of Christ's work. When Christ died for His people, it was unique, once for all, unrepeatable, unimitable, not to be imitated. 
Right? I, I can't die for your sins. You can't die for the sins of your family. Christ's work is unique in that particular regard. And yet at the same time, the manner of Christ's self-giving sets for us a pattern that we are in fact called to follow. You think of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this, Christ died for us. There's the picture of substitutionary atonement. Christ dying in the place of sinners. But Peter doesn't end there. Christ said, uh, Peter says Christ died for us to leave us an example that we might follow in his steps. It is not a question of either or. It is a question of both and. Christ died for us, and he also has, in dying for us, left for us an example. Greater love has no man than this, than a man that a man laid down his life for his friends. And Christ begins to tell his disciples in John 15, I am laying down my life for you. But now you are called to love one another, and so lay down your life for the brothers. It's kind of like a, a carpenter learning a trade, or a musician learning to play the violin. The great way to learn an art or craft or skill is to imitate your instructor. Repeat after me. Play this. Learn your scales. Do this. No, this is how you're supposed to do it. This is what the Christian life is like. It is an apprenticeship. One of fashioning our lives in pattern after our Savior. 1 Peter 2, as we said earlier, Christ died for us, leaving us an example on how we are to respond to unjust suffering. In Philippians 2, which we had read earlier this morning in our reading of the law, Paul says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Christ is set forth as the model of imitation for humility and self-sacrifice and love. Well, what we see here in 2 Corinthians 8 is that same concept where Christ is set forth as that model for imitation. Though the emphasis here is not on Christ's model for imitation in the midst of unjust suffering or the model for imitation in the midst of humility as we see elsewhere, but the focus here is on Christ's gracious character and how we are called to imitate and follow in His steps. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says here, that though he was rich, yet he became poor. I think the immediate question that we have before us then is in what sense was Christ rich? I think when we think of uh, wealth and riches, we think of our, uh, uh, what's in our bank account. We think of our stock portfolio portfolios. If you have a stock portfolio, I don't even know what a stock portfolio is, but if you have one, you might be thinking of that. You might be thinking of private jets that certain celebrity preachers have or having a particular house on the beach or a summer home. You think of all these extra amenities. So we have to ask ourselves, is Paul saying that Christ was loaded financially? Well, I think it's quite obvious that that's not the case. Any any cursory look at the New Testament tells us, in fact, quite the opposite. Here is Christ who was born not in a palace, but in somebody else's barn to teenage peasant parents. You think of Luke chapter, chapter 2, uh, when Jesus' own parents come to offer sacrifices uh, at the temple. What is it that they offer? They offer little birds. That, that's the, uh, that's the, the sacrifice given of poor people. Parents who can't even afford uh, a, a lamb or a goat. Christ is born in the midst of extreme poverty. Parents who, in fact, not only peasants, but are on the run. 
Uh, they have to flee to Egypt so that uh, Jesus uh, not be put to death by Herod who has sought uh, this, ma- this mass infanticide of the Hebrew children to try to put a stop to the coming of the Messiah. When they finally return, they settle in a podunk village in the middle of nowhere. They're, they haven't returned to their hometown. They're setting up shop. They're strangers, even in their own neighborhood. He grows up the son of a carpenter. By the time Jesus is full grown, it seems that Joseph has in fact died. As we know, there's no government support for widows in the first century. Here's a single mother with uh, Christ himself having multiple siblings. No father in a small town, away from their family, out in the sticks. That's Christ's childhood. And when we, we look at Christ's ministry, it doesn't seem to get much better. Throughout Jesus' whole ministry, he continues to be, in one sense, homeless. What is it that Jesus says? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere, in fact, to lay his head. Jesus is having to go, basically crash uh, on the couch of friends and family members as he goes from village to village and town to town preaching the gospel. He gains a following, that is true, but most end up being uh, fickle and fair-weather friends. The treasurer among, his, among the twelve is a thief. He's betrayed by one of his friends. He's denied by another. He's abandoned by the rest. Even when he needed them the most. He's falsely accused and executed as a common criminal, though he had done nothing wrong. Even his grave is paid for by another. It's not a used tomb, but it's furnished by somebody else. It's not even a family plot. And even at the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not the picture of wealth and luxury. From the cradle to the grave, Christ's wealth did not consist in material possessions or in financial reward. Rather, Christ's life, the totality of his life, not just his ministry, is marked by poverty, humiliation, destitution, not just financial, but in just about every way imaginable. That's why we confessed our faith together uh, earlier, asking in what state did Christ's humiliation consist? I think we, we might consider Christ's own humiliation being you know, the final week of his, uh, of his earthly life. Maybe the, the, the day on the cross, maybe the night of his betrayal. But the Scriptures paint a particularly different scenario. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4-6. to six. Christ's entire life is one of humiliation. Being born under the law, bearing the weight of its curse. And that's exactly Paul's point here. When Paul speaks of the wealth of Christ, Paul is not speaking of Christ's material wealth. So we have to ask, in what way was Christ rich. What we see here is that Paul is using the language of wealth as a metaphor for Christ's pre-incarnate existence and activity. Christ existed before He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
That he who was rich beyond all splendor for love's sake became poor. That that poverty consisted in Christ making himself of no reputation, of low estate. That even by taking himself uh, uh, to himself the form of a servant, what Paul says in Philippians 2, taking to himself human form, that is Christ's own humiliation. Here it is, the God and the maker of heaven and earth has decided to become man. That is an act of extreme humiliation. He who is equal with the Father, the exact imprint of the Father's nature, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one who upholds all things by the very word of his power, has taken to himself flesh and blood as a king would a pauper's cloak, and dwell in the midst of his people. As Christ comes to his own and is in fact rejected by his own, falsely accused, suffers, and dies in their place, in our place. It is a humiliation of the most degrading nature, and Paul speaks of that as Christ's poverty. And so what we see here is that the wealth and poverty of Christ is a rich metaphor that Paul is using to speak of Christ's incarnate work. The fact that the Son of God has become man, taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. The riches speaks of Christ and all that He is and all that He has by nature from eternity past. And so now the poverty of Christ is Paul's way of speaking of the Son of God becoming man and entering into his estate of humiliation. There's this famous story that goes about in the 17th century of a a famous Ottoman sultan who uh, received word that there were people who would be criticizing his particular labors as the Muslim emperor, that they would criticize his work in the local cafes and stuff uh, in what is modern-day Turkey. And so this is the Ottoman Sultan Murad IV. Uh, And so what he was known to have done is in the evenings, he would uh, dress up like a pauper, and he'd go into the little coffee shops and the coffee bars, dressing like a commoner, nobody knowing his real identity. And he'd sit in the coffee shops in the back, and he would listen to uh, the love songs that the commoners would sing, of course, not about him, uh, because then they, he would hear uh, what they really thought about the sultan, their king. While this sultan took on the form of a commoner, he did not cease to be a sultan. He was, he was both and. He only veiled his glory. Of course, for him, he did that so he could expose his enemies and put them to death. Would stand up, unveil his cloak, and then point out those who had been speaking ill of him even to his face, and was said to have them all executed. What we see before us is something far better, though. The gospel gives us a picture of someone far better than pagan emperors. One who not merely pretended to be poor, but one who truly took on our poverty. Christ himself became man, and he will not cease to be man throughout the end of eternity. He has joined Himself indissolubly with the human nature. 
So that Christ, always having been God, is now both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Christ truly took on our poverty, but not to expose our sin, uh, to kind of give you this kind of aha moment, point you out so that you could be executed. Christ took to Himself through poverty, flesh, and blood, to die for the sake of sinners. One who is made like us in every respect, as Hebrews 2 tells us. So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest to atone for the sins of His people, to understand what it is, look, what it is like to undergo humiliation and temptation and sorrow and affliction and even death itself. As Paul says here, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. In the 11th century, the churchman Anselm of Canterbury asked the question, why the God-man? Why is it that God the Son became man? And here we have our answer. It is the means of our salvation. It is for your sake that Christ became poor. It is for your sake that the Son of God took to Himself flesh and blood. The incarnation is not a parlor trick. It is not some type of sleight of hand. It is not a magic, uh, pulling a, a rabbit out of a magic hat. Rather, it is the means whereby God has ordained the sinful race the line of Adam, to be delivered from our estate of sin and misery, to deliver us from our own poverty. But I'd like you to notice this. What it says here is that for your sake He became poor so that by His poverty you might become rich. It doesn't say so that by His wealth you might become rich. Rather, it says it's by his poverty. What's Paul getting at here? You think of the various um, times that pops up in the news when, when the latest billionaire decides to donate a million dollars to the charity of the week. We think, wow, that's a lot of money. Wish he'd give me a million dollars. But from the perspective of the billionaire, that's just a drop in the bucket. Uh, these millionaires who give uh, billionaires who give a million dollars to charity, it's it's not a big deal. They're giving out of their wealth. They're not giving out of their poverty. Think of what Christ Himself did. Said uh, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. When, when Jesus is eyeing the people uh, walking into temple uh, on a particular Sabbath, and they're 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 throwing their money in the money box, and all the wealth they're throwing in loads of uh, large chunks of change, and they're making it known that they're giving a lot of money, and Jesus says nothing. And then there's the, the poor widow who gives essentially a penny. It's all she's able to give. And who is it that Jesus points out as a model for imitation? It is that poor widow because she is giving out of her poverty rather than simply out of her wealth. This is what Paul's getting at here that when it says that Christ gave of Himself. He's not give, simply giving out of His wealth. He's giving everything of Himself so that out of His poverty we might become rich. 
Just as the Macedonian churches have given out of their own poverty, just as the poor widowed woman gave of her poverty, so Christ has done the same to uh, an exponentially greater degree. I think we tend to consider Christ's work uh, in His ministry as no big deal, as if somehow Jesus underneath His tunic or garb has a, a Superman S logo emblazoned and tattooed on His chest. He kind of just floats along thinking as if these things are no big deal. But if Christ truly took to Himself a true body, a true humanity, then we cannot gloss over the passages of Christ's own suffering Oh, there's passages that speak of Christ getting hungry or thirsty or being weary or getting tired or even being tempted. As we read of Christ who stands weeping over the grave of a friend. Or seeing His close friend Peter denying Him from a distance. Or Judas betraying Him with a kiss. Selling Him out for chump change. To be falsely accused. To be the true king of Israel and yet be rejected by the nation. To feel the whip of a Roman soldier, the deafening silence when he calls out to his father from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to feel the weight of that. Here's one who comes to his own and his own do not receive him. It is an utter humiliation. Not just for a day or a week, but the totality of his life. And yet, Scripture tells us that Christ's humiliation is necessary for our salvation as he pays the price of sin by bankrupting heaven of its own wealth and riches because it has been bankrupted of Christ himself. In other words, Christ gave all that he had so that we might inherit all that he does have. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Paul has already told this church just a few chapters prior, that we might be restored to fellowship with the triune God, that we might become partakers of the divine nature, as 1 Peter or 2 Peter puts it, that we might be blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where our justification is secured by Christ's condemnation, where our adoption was sealed in Christ's alienation, where eternal life is procured by the death of the Son of God. And now the fruit of His victory comes from the depths of His poverty. And as He rises again from the dead, declaring victory over death and hell, He lavishes upon us the spirit of sanctification that we might be made to look like our Savior and walk in His steps. And this is what Scripture calls us to do, to look like Christ. This is the thrust of Paul's argument here. This is the trajectory of this particular chapter, that just as Christ graciously gave all from His poverty, that we might become rich. This is a rich spiritual metaphor. He now models what Christian charity ought to look like even in caring for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in both body and soul. Right? We cannot content ourselves with an impressionistic portrait of discipleship where things look nice from a distance. It's in the details. 
The details here focus on our wallets that even our pocketbooks should take a cross-shaped pattern. We cannot be content with a Christianity that simply focuses on externals, that of church attendance, that of prayer and Bible reading, those, although those things are in fact necessary. Rather, we are called to be disciples heeding all that Christ has commanded and taught even as it extends to the heart, to have a lively faith that expresses itself in generosity towards fellow Christians in the same way Christ has expressed such a rich generosity to us. So too ought we express that same generosity to other Christians in great need, even in financial straits, even in the midst of severe drought and affliction. Our discipleship must be concerned with the very details as Paul describes here. To have a discipleship that runs as deep as our pockets and even deeper still. A discipleship that looks like cross-bearing. And following Christ, we find, is not simply to be found in the big things such as martyrdom, but in those daily self-denials, that pattern that leads us to the grave. Even those daily self-denials that exercise itself in ensuring that those fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are taken care of. This is the concern of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This is why our Lord has established its own distinct office, the office of deacon, to ensure that the members of Christ's body are provided for in their needs. It is Christ's concern, and for Paul becomes a chief concern for us as well. And if this is Christ's concern, if this is Paul's concern, if this is the concern of the New Testament churches, so many New Testament churches that we've seen even over the past few weeks, then this should be our concern as well. As Paul himself says, to have this very mind in you which was also in Christ. That though he was rich, out of his poverty, gave of Himself that we might be heirs of the kingdom of grace itself. Here Christ calls us to have a gracious character that expresses itself in self-giving. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We ask that as we consider Your work in our lives, that You would so shape our hearts and mold our hearts and very lives and affections to love those around us even as you have loved us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.